begin with a word of prayer, <clears throat> and then we will we'll begin. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time again when we can look into the book of Romans and try to understand as clearly as we can the gospel according to Paul, that is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, and these great doctrines, especially justification and sanctification. Uh, we know these truths will reinforce our own thinking and uh, cause us to have greater confidence in you and our salvation and our future hope of glory. So bless each one who's here tonight. Give us all uh, ready hearts and minds to accept and obey your word, for we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we uh, are looking at Romans chapters 1 through 8, and um, we could describe those as talking about the doctrine of salvation or being in Christ. We're united with Christ. And uh, there are two major doctrines, uh, two major teachings in those eight chapters, justification and sanctification. And we're now talking about one through four, you know, one through 14, 15 is an introduction to the book and 16 and 17 are the theme. And then beginning eight, verse 18, we start talking about the doctrine of justification or how to be right with God. How is one right with God? Uh, and remember, that's what he discusses. That's what we said in our, in our outline. Uh, the revelation of the righteousness that comes from God by faith alone. So we need the righteousness of Christ applied to us, imputed to us, so that we can be accepted by God. <clears throat> and that impute, imputation of that righteousness is called theologically justification. Now, Paul will use that word when he gets to chapter 3. We are justified. We are declared righteous in God's sight by faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ, his person, his work, and so forth. Hey, so Bill, look, yes. It, at least on my screen, it looks like your screen is like oversized. We're only, I'm only seeing like part of your screen right now. I don't know if it's the same way for everybody, but. Okay, let me see. Um, are you seeing that screen, Pansy? I've got mine at 50%. Okay. So there is a... There is a button. Where do you where do you see that at? At the top. At the top of the screen, it says View Options. Yeah, at the top of the screen, it says View Options. And what does it say there then? It says Fit to Window, fifty percent, a hundred percent. Fit to win, Fit to Window, fifty percent, hundred percent. I've got mine at fifty. Okay, she's got hers at fifty. Now, does that make any difference? Uh, who is that, Bob? Yes, Bob Step. Bob Step. Yeah, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not seeing that setting. I'm on an iPad, so it might be different. Oh, the oh, iPad okay. buttons are different. I'm on the a, iPads are at the maybe they're at the bottom, or you have to touch the screen. Yeah, you have to touch. You have to touch it. You have to touch it to see where it says um, "fit to window" or. Well, I tell you, if it's only me, then don't worry about it. Just okay. I'll, I'll figure it out. <laughs> yeah, there's there's something there. I can't change it here. Uh, okay. On my, I must, must have hit something. Then. I, I dragged mine down to the bottom. You can just uh, left click on it and pull it down to the bottom, and it'll lay across the bottom instead of the side. Okay. I don't. I can't uh, do anything about the screen sharing here. It just shares it, so you'll have to have to be adjusted. So okay. <clears throat> we're talking about uh, this section. And uh, we have looked at, we're looking at the first major section, 118 through 320. So before, remember I said last week, before Paul explains the doctrine of justification or how to be right with God, he wants to say why we need this. Uh, we have to understand our lostness before we can understand our need to be saved, that we're lost in sin. We're, as Paul will explain, we're under the dominion. We're under the power of sin. 
And uh, so we, we need to understand that truth. So the first section, 118 through 320, is the need of this righteousness that God, can, God will impute to us. And so he's going to talk about the fact that we need it because we are condemned. We're under condemnation. Uh, and he's going to explain that he divides the world up into Jew and Gentile. Uh, if we look at the Old Testament, we're talking about the Jews. And then suddenly we get to the New Testament and all people are part of God's family. They can be part of God's family, Jew and Gentile. There is no distinction now. Uh, the Jews are not in a favored place any longer uh, as a people. Uh, all people are uh, acceptable to God and have equal standing before God in this dispensation, this age of the church. <clears throat> but he starts off by explaining that Gentiles are condemned, and then he'll explain that Jews are condemned. And that's going to be uh, quite a little task. That's, going to be, that's not going to be quite so acceptable for Jews, as we'll see, because they think of themselves as God's chosen people. They're, they're, they're in the Abrahamic uh, covenant. They're, they're, they're part of the, the nation of Israel, and so therefore they are sort of automatically right with God, they think. But he'll say no. So the first thing is the Gentiles are condemned. <clears throat> That's us, most of us. And we saw that <clears throat> God's wrath against sin is being revealed. And he says, against those who suppress the truth and their unrighteousness. And so he says, the reason why we are condemned and the reason God's wrath is being revealed is because of mankind's rejection of God. That's 119 through 23. Remember, he explains, God has revealed himself in his creation, in nature, in creation, but mankind rejects that and makes idols, turns to idolatry. Although they knew God, they did not glorify God, Paul says. So all people have a knowledge of God, though they may deny it, they suppress it, but they, they, don't, they don't act properly on that because they're sinners, because we're depraved, we're have sinful natures, we reject that and turn to gods of our own making. Our hearts are idle factories, and we love this or love that. We worship this or worship that. It may be a physical idol, but in our day and age, it's usually something else. So now we are uh, ready to look at the revelation of God's wrath, the consequences of man's rejection. And that's what we're looking at on page 18. We looked at that, I read that, I think that first section here where it says, verses 19 through 22 have told of the pagans' world's rejection of God. Verses 24 through 32 now tell of God's consequent rejection of them. Mankind's sin is their abandonment of God. God punishes mankind by abandoning them. Three times in these three verses, we have these statements, God gave them over. So we said before that the, God's wrath is revealed in the world and the fact that we live in a fallen world, a world of sin and depravity and rejection of God. And we see all around us the results of sin and depravity of rejecting God. Um, and now he's going to explain that more fully here. And it's, it's a downward spiral. And so an answer... Um, to the question before, it's, it's, he's, he goes in sort of a downward spiral. He talks, first of all, about abandoned to sexual impurity in verses 24, 25. This is on page 15 um, of your notes. Um, he says in verse 24, therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. So I say here, God gave them over to the desires of their own hearts. That is, he let them do what they wanted to do. What God gave them over to do, which was in accord with their own desires, was sexual impurity. So he singles out this as a consequence of man's rejection. Men 
mankind turned to sexual immorality, sexual impurity. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. So God gave people over to sexual sin because they abandoned the true God and worshiped idols. Those in verse 24 are further described as exchanging the truth for a lie. So the truth about God is the truth that God has revealed about himself in nature and creation. And this lie is idolatry. As this second part of verse 25 makes clear, they worshiped and served created things. So because of man's idolatry, God gave them over to sexual uh, impurity. He goes on to talk about this uh, consequences of man's rejection. Man goes further into sin. Sexual impurity is one thing, but he goes further in this downward spiral into depravity. Because of this, uh, verse 26 and 27, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with men, other men, and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. So I say here, the second stage in the divine abandonment is God's giving people over to shameful lust. The actions described here in verses 26 and 27, though similar to those in verses 24 and 25, represent a further degree of degeneracy. So in verses 24 and 25, we had um, impurity arising from natural passions natural passions. These tell of impurity arising from unnatural passions, sexual perversion. Paul plainly says here very clearly that homosexuality is a violation of God's created order. Um, homosexuality is not an alternative lifestyle that's acceptable to God. It's another indication that man has departed from the true knowledge of God and the worship of God. It's an indication of man's sin and depravity. The fact that uh, men are said here to uh, have abandoned natural relations uh, suggests that people are, are uh, born, I think it suggests people are born really heterosexual. They're certainly born male and female, as we'll see but they have abandoned heterosexuality for homosexuality. They abandoned it, Paul says. Now I say here, some try to argue that Paul is not condemning all homosexuality. This is a very common argument today. Only that which is contrary to nature, meaning homosexual acts committed by those who are naturally heterosexual. But it seems clear that Paul had no 20th century knowledge that homosexuality is natural. The reference to unnatural, literally it's uh, the phrase is contrary to nature, indicates that Paul refers back to the creation account. Homosexuality is contrary to the creation account, contrary to nature, to what God intended when he created men and women. I say here, homosexuality is unnatural are contrary to nature because it is contrary to God's intention for male and female. Paul uses the relatively rare, rare words male and female that are found in the Genesis account. So though all the translations translate the, the phrase here, men and women, it says in the same way the men abandon, or verse 26, even their women exchanged. It's actually, it's actually, it's uh, the one, one word for females. It's not the technical word for women. It's the, the females exchange the natural relations in the same way the males abandon the natural relations. Uh, and so 
he's referring here back to the Genesis account, Genesis, uh, you know, one twenty seven. Uh, Jesus clearly says, you remember in Matthew nineteen four and five, haven't you read? He replied that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female. Those are the only two sexes. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. Two will become one flesh. <clears throat> so, as I say, the universal understanding in Jewish tradition was that homosexuality was contrary to the created order. There wasn't any idea that we hear, as I've expressed, that somehow uh, hom what Paul is condemning is homosexual acts by heterosexuals. That's not the case at all. Paul is clearly referring back to the creation account, and he says homosexuality is contrary to God's created order. It's unnatural in that sense. Now, what is this due penalty that people receive in themselves? Paul says that men committed shameful or males committed shameful acts with other males and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. It's not perfectly clear, but most people think that it's not something in addition to homosexuality, but being rather handed over to the sin of homosexuality itself. The penalty for idolatry is the sexual perversion itself. Now, I know the homosexuality is glorified and thought to be a wonderful thing, but it's really not, according to the Apostle Paul. It's, it's a terrible thing. It's, 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 a, it's, it's an awful thing. And there's a penalty in it in itself. So Paul is talking here about a downward spiral that has happened because mankind has universally rejected God, God's revelation in nature. He suppressed the knowledge of God and he has, um, he has turned to idolatry. Paul says, now abandoned to a depraved mind. Verse 28, furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. I say here, because they did not seek to retain God in their knowledge, he gave them over to a depraved mind. In verses 22 through 24, 25 through 27, Paul has shown how the sexual immorality that pervades humanity has its root in the rejection of the true God in favor of gods of their own making. Now, in verses 28 through 32, he traces the sins of inhumanity, of mankind's hatred of their fellow man to this same root of idolatry. So he says, God hand them over to a depraved mind. This word depraved means uh, a disqualified mind, a mind that's uh, not able to understand and acknowledge the will of God. This is this is this is the mind of this is the mind we come into the world with, with a depraved mind, with a corrupt mind. We need our minds to be regenerated. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2:14. The person without the spirit, that's that's us when we come into the world as unsaved people. The person without the spirit, the unsaved person, the King James says, uh, the natural man does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they're only discerned through the Spirit. So God uh, turned man over to his depravity, to his natural mind, to his depraved mind. <clears throat> and the result of this depravity is that people do things, Paul says, not fitting, not proper, things that should not be done, a lot of immoral things, wrong things, evil things. And he's going to acknowledge what they are now in verses 29 through 31. Here's, here's a list. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, 
slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, <clears throat> no love, no mercy. Now these verses, I say, make up what's called a vice list, which are common in Paul's writings. He'll just list out a lot of different sins. Here the terms show no consistent logical order. They're not intended to be some logical order. And the terms, and some terms are synonymous with others. There's overlap. Paul is not listing every possible sin, but he's listing all kinds of sins that are a result of our sinful natures, our depravity. And this is a result of mankind's rejection of God. Verse 32, although they know God's righteous decree <clears throat> that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these things, but also approve of those who practice them. So here's the climax in verse 32. The function of this verse is to bring out even more fully the willful rebellion against God that pervades humanity. Paul notes that those who engage in the activities as listed know that what they're doing is wrong, although they knew, know God's righteous decree. Now we'll see how, <clears throat> we'll talk more about that when we get to chapter two, because Paul will explain there that all of us are born with a, um, with a knowledge of God's moral law. That is, we, we have, in, because we're in the image of God, we naturally know right from wrong. Now that gets perverted by depravity, but there is a sense within us of this is right, this is wrong, but, and our conscience therefore convicts us, as we'll see, and we feel guilty uh, because this moral code that's with, that God implants with us. But even though they know this, they continue, it says here, to defy God by, their, by wicked behavior and give approval even to others who do these things. I mean, this is a real total depravity when you approve, people approve of the sinful acts of others. All right, any question about that before we go on to uh, chapter two? What I'm getting from that is that idolatry is actually, I mean, God just turns you over to the idolatry, that's the root. And then yeah. all these other things are coming from that. Yeah, God turns us over, uh, turns us over to our own depravity. He turns us, we, we reject him, and he turns us over to our own sinful natures. And these natures, therefore, result in sinful acts. Okay. And, you know, there's various degrees of sin. Uh, some people are worse sinners than others. And that means there's going to be degrees of punishment in hell. Uh, Hitler is going to be punished much greater than <laughs> a lot of other people, you know. So it depends on the extent of our corruption and our sinfulness, how far we fall into depravity and sin. Uh, as that will determine the punishment of God ultimately upon the unsaved. All right. Let's go on then to um, chapter two. So remember, we're talking about the need for righteousness to be imputed to us so that we can be right with God. And he said the Gentiles are condemned and all the Jews in the audience are saying, amen, brother Paul. We knew that. We don't have any doubt about it. They, they don't, you know, these people are just pagan idolaters. They, they don't worship the true God. They worship Zeus and all these mystery religions. And, but now he's going to turn to uh, the Jew. And I say here, in 118 through 32, Paul speaks of those people whom he accuses of perverting their knowledge of God, Gentiles primarily, in the third person, they turned away from God. God handed them over. In chapter 2, however, it's the second person, singular you, that Paul uses in making his accusations. Paul utilizes here and sporadically through the letter, a literary genre type of literature called the diatribe. What does that mean? Well, in this way of writing, uh, this genre, an author gets his point across by engaging in an imaginary discussion 
or debate with a student or opponent. And Paul, you will see that sort of imaginary ask questions and then answers these questions and so forth. Paul's main target here in this section is the Jew, ultimately. Although the explicit identification of Paul's target only comes in 2.17, sort of the hidden target already, 2, 1 through 5. He's talking here, obviously, about a very religious person here, as we taught, said before, a very righteous person who considers himself righteous and religious, which the Jews did. <clears throat> but he's actually going to name the Jew when he gets uh, to verse 17. He begins here uh, by talking about God's impartial judgment, 2, 1 through 16. The three key phrases are in verse 2. God's judgment is based on truth impartial. Verse 6, God will repay each person according to what they have done. It's impartial. And 11, God does not show favoritism. He's impartial. So these phrases point up essentially the same truth, namely that at the final judgment, no one will enjoy a most favored nation status. You know, in trade and stuff, uh, some nations have a most favored nation status with the United States. They get better relations, better uh, treatment and trade and so forth. Uh, the Jews, as I've said, the, Jew, the fact that the Jews had these privileges, their privileges and their superior morality overall, if you looked outwardly at the morality of the Jews in general versus pagans, it was superior outwardly. That, that tended to uh, make them a critic of the pagan Gentiles. Uh, because their religious position was certainly less favored than the Jewish position. But now Paul turns his attention, his flashlight around on the critic here. Uh, and he says, you're not going to escape the wrath of God either, either, because God is an impartial judge. Verses one through five <clears throat> first. God condemns the unrepentant. Paul begins in verse 2, You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. So he's turned his attention to you, second person, clearly thinking of the Jew because that's what they did. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. So he begins with a general charge of guilt. The thought as follows. You give assent to God's righteous decree and judge others for the sins they commit. Two, you are equally guilty of the same sins as the Gentiles. Now, Paul here is probably thinking of that vice list back in 129 through 32, which was also prevalent among the Jews. Remember, he talks about greed. He talks about envy. He talks about uh, arrogance and boasting and disobeying parents. Well, certainly Jews did those kinds of things. He's talking probably about those things rather than references to idolatry specifically. They didn't worship physical idols, and uh, they were not certainly uh, condemned. They were they were condemning homosexuality very strongly. So in verses seventeen through twenty-four, we'll see Paul will con will will uh, accuse the Jews of some of those same sins back in 29 through 31. And so that's what he means when he says, you do the same kinds of things. Number three, therefore, you condemn yourself and are like the Gentiles without excuse. Paul's point here, and he'll get to it in chapter three, that everyone is under the power of sin. There's no one who can escape and we're all condemned equally. Chapter two, uh, two uh, verse two. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do his things is based on truth. So Paul states a general principle establishing the fact and fairness of God's judgment of sin. God's judgment is fully in accord with the facts that it is just. It is just because it falls on those who actually do such things. Now this idea was one with which Paul and the Jewish dialogue partner. See, Paul is sort of dialoguing. He's talking to a Jewish person or a religious person here. And so 
when we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth, uh, Paul's Paul's uh, audience, his dialogue partner, would agree with him. The disagreement comes in its application to the Jews in the same way as it applies to the Gentiles. Verse 3, so when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you'll escape God's judgment? Or do you... Or, or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that the kindness of God is intended to lead you to repentance? So these verses, by means of two rhetorical questions here, you know, uh, do you think you will escape God's judgment, or do you show contempt, you know, these questions, they point up the attitude of the unbelieving Jew. The first question, which implies an emphatic neg- neg- negative answer, uh, do you think you'll escape God's judgment? Uh, answers that they felt they were exempt from divine judgment, doubtless because of their relationship to the Mosaic covenant. Remember what our Lord, uh, what Matthew three says: "Produce fruit in keeping with repentance." Um, John the Baptist said, "And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father.' I'll tell you that out of these stones, God." can raise up children for Abraham. So uh, the point is, again, they thought because we are Abraham's children, we're exempt from God's judgment. The second question, verse four, do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, etc., implies that they treated with contempt the wealth of God's goodness and forbearance, which suspended the infliction of his wrath upon them in the present age and was intended to lead them to repentance. So God's seeming indifference to their sin due entirely to his, you know, his forbearance and his patience was not meant to be, as they thought, a license to do evil, but rather an inducement to repent. Verse 5, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. The Jew has resisted the repentance that God's goodness was calculated to produce because of his stubbornness and unrepentant heart, Paul says. Therefore, he's storing up for himself, you know, wrath to be executed on the day of wrath, the eschatological day of wrath, when God will judge things, his righteous judgment will be revealed. So God condemns the unrepentant, uh, a fact that uh, everyone should agree with. God judges according to works, verses 6 through 11 here. I say God is impartial, and therefore God judges Jews and Gentiles by the same standard works. Verse 6, God will repay each person according to what they have done. God will repay each person according to what they've done. This verse brings out two important aspects of God's judgments. It's universality, each person see it later on, and their criterion by which he will be carried out. It's according to what they have done. Verse 7, to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. Let me read that again in case you didn't get that. (laughs) To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and mortality, he'll give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew and for the, then for the Gentiles. So I say here, these verses expand upon the principle stated in verse 6, God will pay each person according to what they've done, and apply it to two types of persons. The two persons are the righteous, those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, verse 7, and the wicked, those who are self-seeking and those who reject the truth and follow evil, verse 8. Two different rewards are named. For the righteous, there will be eternal life, glory, honor, and peace. For the wicked, there will be wrath and anger, trouble and distress. 
In verse 7, I say, Paul asserts that those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality will be granted eternal life. And in verse 10, similarly, he affirms everyone who does good will receive glory, honor, and peace. Now, what do we do think about this? Well, obviously, Paul cannot mean that people can actually be saved by actually doing good works. Now, it sounds like it. Seems to say that those who by persistence in doing good, he'll give eternal life and so forth. Uh, it sounds like he's saying that one can be saved by simply doing good works. Now, the reason that can't be true is because elsewhere, Paul makes it very clear <clears throat> that you can't achieve eternal life by good works. It's only by faith in Jesus Christ. He's already said that in Romans 1.17. A righteousness, a right standing with God, that is by faith from first to last. He says in 3.20 later on, after he just said what he just said. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. It won't happen. It can't happen. The righteousness is given, this righteousness, he says in verse 28, is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Verse 28, for we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So what is Paul saying here? Paul is speaking of any non-Christian. If someone were to do good persistently, Remember um, verse 7 here. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality. So if someone were to do good persistently, that person would gain eternal life. The promise of eternal life for the doer of the law is implicit in a number of texts. That is, if you do the law perfectly, you will have life. Remember, Jesus says, why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there's only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Romans 2.13, what's well, not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it's those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Romans 7.10, I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. I say here, the promise of eternal life for those who do good is fully valid. But since the fall of Adam, the power of sin prevents anyone from doing good to the degree necessary to merit salvation. Verses 7 and 10 set out the condition, apart from Christ, for salvation that Paul's subsequent argument shows no one is able to fulfill. So what Paul is saying here is there is, in the Old Testament law, Leviticus 18.5, uh, there is a promise that if you fulfill the law perfectly, if you do the law perfectly, you will have life. The promise is real, but it's never becomes valid or operative because the condition for its fulfillment, consistent, earnest seeking after good can never be realized. If someone were to keep the law perfectly, actually someone did, <laughs> his name was Jesus. If someone were to keep the law perfectly, God would have nothing he could do but grant that person life. That, that's just, it would have to be. So the promise is there if someone were able to do it, but no one is able to do it. Paul says in Galatians 3, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, as it is written. Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God 
because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says, the person who does these things will live by them, Leviticus 18.5. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it's written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. So yes, because a person does not keep the law, because you don't keep the law perfectly, you're under a curse. You're condemned. And therefore, God's going to judge. So the only solution is to have the righteousness of someone who did fully, persistently, perfectly keep the law, his righteousness applied to us so that God looks at us through Christ, through the one who did keep the law perfectly. Verse 11, for God does not show favoritism. Now in this verse, Paul returns to the, that's the main theme about God is impartial. Well, God's impartial judgment. He condemns the unrepentant. He judges according to works. The universe, and so the unsaved, un, unsaved who appear before God, the great white throne, will be judged according to their works. The universality of mankind's accountability to God, 2, 12 through 16. This paragraph defends the equality of all people before God's judgment seat against the charge that the Jew's possession of the law gives to him a decisive advantage. This is not the case. Paul argues because it is the doing, not the hearing, or possessing the law that matters. And even the Gentiles who do not have God's law in written form and have it in a different sense, as we'll see. And so there is not really as much difference between the Jew and Gentile as the Jew might actually think. Now in verse 12, we come to the first use of the word law. All who sin apart from the law will be perish apart from the law and all who sin under the law will be judged by law. <clears throat> so I've put a chart on page 21 so we can talk for a moment about what does Paul mean when he says the term law? He uses the term law in a number of different senses or meanings. And so when we look at the Romans especially and the New Testament, we need to understand what is he talking about? What law is he talking about? So I've got here a, a diagram. It may seem a little complicated, but I'll try to explain it here. Uh, a categorization of Paul's use of the term law. Uh, this is the Greek term anamas. Namas, you may have heard, uh, uh, well, you know about Deuteronomy, the Book of Deuteronomy means the second law, Deutero's second law. It's kind of the second statement of the law. So the word namas is used in a number of English words, not so common to us. <clears throat> it's the equivalent of the Hebrew Torah, the Torah, the Torah, the Torah, the law. So Paul uses it in a number of ways, and let's break this down. Uh, we have... Um, two main categories here, what we might call non-legal uses, and then, you know, actual legal uses. Most of the time we think of law, we think about legal uses. But on the right side of that uh, page, it says non-legal uses. And the first one is with reference to the canon, that is scripture. Sometimes the word law doesn't have anything to do with the Mosaic law in the sense of, uh, the Ten Commandments or anything. It's just a reference to Scripture. Uh, and an example is Romans 3.19, footnote 1. Now we know that whatever the law says, the Scripture says, the Old Testament says, it says to those who are under the law. So sometimes law uh, means the Scriptures. <clears throat> Another non-legal use is sometimes it means principle or force of authority. Like we might talk about the law of gravity, the law of gravity, something like that. Um, 
we have that in Romans 7, 25, 21, number two, footnote two. So I find this law at work. I'm not talking about the Mosaic law or a 10 commandment. I find this principle at work. I find this principle, although I want to do good, I try to do good. Evil is right there with me. It's a principle that I find. It's a force. It's really my sinful depravity, but so that's another use of the term law. Now the ones that we're mainly concerned about are on the left side of that top of that chart, a demand, our body of demands. Um, so a, a, either a single demand or a, a body of demands, like we say the 10 commandments is a body of commands. Usually with sanctions, sanctions are penalties. Uh, <clears throat> like we were discussing today in a meeting, as we were talking about a saying that uh, one of my, my colleague, Dr. McCune, uh, Dr. Uh, Pastor Ken will often mention his theology teacher, Dr. McCune, but Dr. McCune used to say uh, a, uh, a law without sanctions is just good advice. That is, you know, uh, if you see that speed limit sign and it says 35 miles an hour, uh, it has sanctions. There's a penalty. It's not just advice. <laughs> We'd like for you to do 35. If you do more, we could, uh, you know, actually pull you over and give you a ticket. So usually it's a body of, of a single demand or a body of demands that usually has some penalty to it. Now uh, there is, this is used in a general sense. That's uh, on the left side there. That's footnote three, 214. Indeed, when the Gentiles who do not have the law do by the nature of the things required by the law, they are a law for themselves. Now, that's what he's talking about here as we'll get to that is this innate moral consciousness that we're born with. And that moral consciousness is kind of our own little law. It's a law unto ourselves. It's not written, but it's inherent. Uh, so it is a body of, it is a body of demands. Uh, and uh, the sanction of course there is that we feel guilty if we violate our moral uh, law inside. But the one we're concerned about is on the right divine law. And that's what we'll mostly see in the book of Romans. Almost all the cases, I've cited a few here that aren't, but most of the cases are divine law. And um, this can be divided into three categories itself. There is general, uh, the basic demand, divine law generally, in its mosaic form. And that's, that's the most common that we'll see in the book of Romans. That is the mosaic law or in its New Testament form, uh, the law of Christ. So uh, going back to this divine law, we have the general aspect, the basic demand, footnote four, the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. He's not talking about the Mosaic law there in particular. It's just God's moral law. It doesn't submit to God's moral demands, the, the, the general moral law of God. Uh, that's, the, that's the basic uh, idea of that. Um, we move over to the right side in its New Testament form, number five. That is, we'll see in this book, in the book of Romans, and we see in other books like Galatians, that you and I as believers in Christ are not technically under the Mosaic law. We're not under the Mosaic dispensation economy and dispensation, but we're still under God's law, God's moral law. And in the New Testament that's called, and we have added to that other laws, uh, other Paul's epistles, when he gives commands, they are commands, they're laws. They are called the law of Christ. Number five, Paul says, carry each other's burdens. And this way you fulfill the law of Christ or the commands of Christ. First Corinthians nine twenty. To those under the law, I became like one under the law. Now, that's the Mosaic law there in that case. Though I myself am not under the law. As Paul says, as a Christian, I'm not under the Mosaic legal system anymore. But in order to reach people, in order to reach Jews, 
I would, I would uh, follow the, the Jewish legal system. I would follow that so I wouldn't offend Jews. To those under the law, became like under the law, to, so to win those under the law. To those not having the law, that's Gentiles, I became like one not having the law. So when they, these Gentiles had their ham sandwiches, I didn't get upset, you know. As I said, Paul liked a good ham sandwich uh, too himself. Uh, to those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law. I'm not, just because I'm not under the Mosaic law doesn't mean I can do whatever I want to do. I'm not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law. So I'm following the commands of the New Testament, Christ's law. But mainly in its mosaic form. And there you have two, you could distinguish two concepts, a body of commands and more broadly a system or economy. Mosaic law, we think we call it. Now, Paul just uses the term law, L-A-W, but sometimes he means, most of the time means the Mosaic law in some form. So uh, 319, again, that we saw before, when it says um, uh, number six, I'm sorry, Romans 2.13, for it is not those who hear the law, those body of commands who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law, obey those body of commands who will be declared righteous. And then you can talk about it even more broadly as a system or economy. Romans 3.19, for we know that whatever the law says, now that scripture says, that's the term you said the law for scripture, it says to those who are under the law, that's the Jews, because the Mosaic legal system was their governmental system. It was their civil and religious and moral system they were a, a theocracy under God. So uh, as we go through the book of Romans, I'll be pointing out, well, here's this use of the law, here's that use of the law by the Apostle Paul. And we start that here on 2.12. Um, should have put up that chart there that was there. Um, so he says in uh, 2.12, all who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. So the division of the world into those with the law and those without the law in verse 12 corresponds to the distinction between Jew and Gentiles, verses 10 and 14. This means that the law refers to the, mo the law of Moses given to the people at Sinai. Now, in Judaism, as I've hinted at and talked about, the mere possession of the law was often regarded as virtually guaranteeing salvation. Uh, you can find this in all kinds of Jewish sources that suggest that we have the law given to us by God. <clears throat> We're virtually guaranteed. Paul is going to level the ground here. He's going to relativize the difference between Jew and Gentile, arguing that any who sin without the law um, will, never, will, 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 be, will nevertheless be condemned, and any who sin while possessing the law will be condemned through the same law. So he's going to say that, you know, you're, you're still in, 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 a, in, a, in really the same position because if you don't have the law, you'll be condemned. If you have the law, that same law will condemn you. So it's not, the, it's not the means of salvation that you think it is. Verse 13, for it's not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight or who possess the law, hear the law, but it's those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Paul explains why even those who possess the law will nevertheless be condemned when they sin. It's because the law can justify only when it's obeyed, reading it, hearing it, taught and preached, studying it. None of these or all these can justify. Now, again, only the law can justify, remember, if it's perfectly obeyed. The Christian is not, the Christian is not justified by doing the law. We don't do the law, but by what Paul will call a fulfilling of the law in Romans chapter 8 when he gets over there. He'll say, for what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh. Now, there, see, there's the problem. 
No one can keep the law because of the flesh or the sinful nature. God did by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law, the law requires perfect righteousness. The righteous requirement of the law might be met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So those of us who have the spirit, who are regenerated, the righteous requirement of the law is met in us because of Christ's righteousness. Verse 14, indeed, when the Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature the things required by the law, they don't, those who don't have the law of Moses do by nature the things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They don't have the Mosaic law. They show the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them, and at other times even defending them. So these two verses are a self-contained unit. Uh, if you notice here, there's a parenthesis in the NIV here, starting at verse 14 and ending at verse 15. They're kind of parenthetical, and then verse 16 will pick up the thought of verse 13 here. They refer to the Gentiles who do some parts of the law but are not saved. They're an explanation and qualification of apart from the law in verse 12. Gentiles are indeed apart from the law in the sense of the written law of Moses. Gentiles didn't have the law of Moses. They nevertheless have some access to God's moral demands, his law, in the more general sense, and are not then condemned for failing to do that of which they had no knowledge of all. So Paul is saying that Gentiles do occasionally, did occasionally, uh, do what the law requires. That is, Gentiles sometimes obeyed their parents. They refrain from murder. They refrain from theft. They refrain from adultery. So uh, these Gentiles did the things. Many Gentiles did the, uh, kept the law, even though they didn't have the law. Now, why was that? Because of the on the basis of the inborn uh, moral law within them, because they're created in the image of God. We are created in God's image. And because we are in God's image, we have within us, within our hearts, this moral law, this code. Now, unfortunately, sin and depravity distorts that. And it can distort it greatly. But we have that. And that means that our consciousness, as we'll see, consciousness is affected. Uh, I say here, what this doing of the law demand shows, Paul concludes, is that Gentiles who don't have the law, the law of Moses, are not completely without law. They are a law for themselves. When Paul says, what Paul says then, uh, when Paul says then that the Gentiles who do some of the things required by the Mosaic law are a law for themselves, he's not saying that they need no law to guide them, but their behavior testifies to the knowledge of divine moral standards. Now, it's, it's great that we have that. If we didn't have that, <clears throat> our society would be much worse than it is if people didn't have some sort of iner inherent a sense of right or wrong. Verse 15 is closely related to verse 14 as Paul repeats his claim that Gentiles manifest an innate awareness of God's demands. Being in the image of God, they have the moral law written on their hearts, and this is seen in their conscience. They debate right and wrong. So the conscience itself is not a source of these moral norms or moral laws, but uh, functions like a reflective mechanism. So we know something is wrong, and if we know it's wrong and we do it, we feel guilty about it. That guilt is a reflection of God's moral law written on our hearts. Verse 16, uh, this is going back to verse 13. This will take place on the day when God judges, remember verse 13, uh, for it's those who hear the law, it's not those who hear the law who are righteous, but it's those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. 
Verse 16 connects with the thought of verse 13, 14 and 15, remember, parenthetical. Uh, God's declaration of righteous status will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ. And when Paul refers here to my gospel, he doesn't mean a particular form of teaching peculiar to him, but the gospel that had com been committed to him that was common to all Christians, which had been trusted to God by him to proclaim to the Gentiles uh, for his preservation, for his proclamation. Well, we've run out of time here. And so finally, in verse 17, we will get to Paul uh, actually honing in and getting down to the Jews explicitly. All right.